It's the Neverland Podcast, episode 71. Welcome to Neverland. Take the start of the right and stay until morning. Greetings! I hope you have your pixie in your pocket with you right now, because I am your host, Jeremy. I am the pan. I am Spider Pan. And I need you to take that pixie out of your pocket, sprinkle some of that pixie dust, and we will once again fly away to Neverland, where we have all kinds of fun and excitement for you today. Mainly, we have a great interview with a a guy by the name of Jeffrey Weissman. Now, you might not know that name, but I guarantee you probably seen him before if you have looked at the cover photo of this week's episode i'm sure it looked kind of familiar to you but you're not expecting the name jeffrey weissman to be connected to it well you're going to learn all about why he is connected with that photo and who you're actually looking at in this week's episode but before we do that we of course have to get a little bit of business out of the way I want to remind you to email me at podcast at neverlandpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at NeverlandPCast. Find us on Facebook, Neverland Podcast. We also have both a Facebook like page and a Facebook group. You can leave us a voicemail, 816-226-6492. Remember that you can also join the Neverlanders. If you go to neverlandpodcast.com, you will find a little section called the Neverlanders right there. There's a black bar across the top in that link, and you can find the instructions on how you can become an official Lost Boy or Pixie of Neverland. Now, you might wonder, how comes it's Lost Boys and Pixie and it's not Lost Boys and Lost Girls? Well, that's because girls are too clever, they don't get lost. So you will become Pixies. Also, don't forget you can donate through Patreon. We have a link right there at NeverlandPodcast.com on the left-hand side. Or you just go to Patreon.com slash NeverlandPodcast. I am working on updating some of the milestones on there. And uh, also make sure that to take a look on the Neverland Podcast website for Give Kids the World. I have a link there. Half of my proceeds I get through Patreon do go to Give Kids the World, and they help terminally ill children and their families make a trip out there to Walt Disney World. So it's a really a wonderful cause. So by helping me, you also help them. It's a wonderful thing. But before we get any further, how did y'all like last week's show. Now, I know it came in a little bit early. I was trying to get it in on April Fool's, and uh, we got taken over by pirates. And I hope you all had fun with that. Uh, I know I enjoyed uh, uh, listening to it. I didn't record anything. No, I was not part of it at all. It was a surprise thing to me. Yeah, you believe that one, don't you? But it was a lot of fun. And if you liked the artwork I have on there for the, you know, for that episode, I have been considering adding it to our shop on some mugs, t-shirts, or anything like that. If you, you know, enjoyed it, let me know. Uh, I need to do some updates to some of our, our uh, products there. I think I'm going to try to see if I can get a little bit better resolution. But don't forget, at NeverlandPodcast.com, there is a shop logo there. Well, it's not really a logo. It just says shop there on the links bar, as I'm calling it, big black bar there at the top of the screen. And that's where you can find the shop, and you can find mugs, shirts, all kinds of different things, and helping to support the Neverland Podcast. 
uh, I get a couple of bucks out of every one of those sales, even though the prices they are <laughs> are well, they're not completely completely set by me. I only have a little influence on how much of that money I get. The rest of it, of course, goes to the manufacturer that I'm working with there. But it is fun to be able to get some products that have Neverland podcast and show a little love to Neverland, and also to be able to share it with others and have other people, you know, know about it because you're wearing it or having a coffee mug with it at the office, you know, <laughs> that kind of a thing. And also, don't forget if you go to iTunes or Stitcher or Blueberry to, and find our page in there please give us a nice review in there uh give us an honest review if you completely hate me let me know and then maybe you know share a way that you can that maybe we can improve it and maybe you'll start to enjoy this show <laughs> we'll figure it out uh but you know before we go any further here now we have some interesting disney park news this is gary gnu and the no gnu's is good gnu show the only tv gnu's program guaranteed to contain no gnu's Whatsoever. Never land news from the Disney parks. Okay, I'm going to keep this very, very simple. A lot of you have already probably heard that some of this turned out to be true, but it has been now confirmed this week by Disney that the Hatbox Ghost is indeed returning into the Haunted Mansion for Disneyland's 60th anniversary. Uh, we do expect to see him in May. They confirmed it with some really neat artwork to kind of give us an idea of what he's going to look like, which is pretty much what we've expected him to look like. Those of us that are fans of the Haunted Mansion, which I think is most of us that are Disney fans, we do love the Haunted Mansion. But uh, it is confirmed that, yes, they have been working on putting him back in at Disneyland. No word on him ever returning to Walt Disney World. Well, not really returning. I guess the word they're saying is reappearing since he was there before. And maybe perhaps he had just dematerialized and has always been lurking there in the shadows. We don't know. Okay? That's what they're saying, at least, at the Disney Parks blog. Also, the Matterhorn bobsled ride. You probably heard about this one, too. This was also big news. They're going to get some new updates, some, some new effects. Uh, we're expecting some projection technology, some, you know, maybe some new ways to have the Yeti kind of animated and interact a little bit more. Uh, maybe if this goes over well, maybe we'll get something better than Disco Yeti over in Disney's Animal Kingdom. But uh, who knows? <laughs> but uh, we don't know when that is opening up. We have not heard. Also, Peter Pan's flight in Disneyland will be opening pretty soon with some new updates to the queue, similar to what was done apparently at Walt Disney World. If I'm not mistaken, that's where I've seen video. I haven't gotten to go and see the new updates personally, but I'm pretty sure it was Walt Disney World that did all the updates into the nursery and some new animations, and Tinkerbell goes around, and they have a lot of other fun with shadows. Lots of fun stuff, and I'm expecting Disneyland, that's what they're going to open with. It'll be something similar to that to make the queue a lot more fun, and so that long wait will seem just like an exciting time. Uh, maybe they'll actually have even some new things that we haven't seen yet before i don't know but hey if one of you managed to get into disneyland this summer and you get a look at the new peter pan's flight you want to get some video and share it with the neverlanders feel free to send it to me podcast and neverlandpodcast.com heck if you record some audio of it we'd be very glad to share that as well now moving on to well some tv news hello out there in tv land now here's something we hope you'll really like a neverland podcast television review Okay, I'm calling this a television re uh, review, but it's not necessarily television. In fact, you could watch this on a mobile device if you wanted to. It's available on any computer or uh, a Roku device. Roku, sorry. <laughs> but uh, Daredevil has now come out. The first episode premiered on Friday. 
I'm not going to review the whole thing here on this show because it's not necessarily a family-friendly type of show, but I do have a complete review for you at news.neverlandpodcast.com or simply go to neverlandpodcast.com and click on news and you will be able to find the article I wrote up. I actually just wrote it up yesterday. I did watch the show twice and I will say that I did enjoy it, but I will say also... uh, I, I would advise parental guidance on this. Um, it is a little rough because on Netflix you can get away with some things that you can't really get away with on ABC television. So they, it's it's not uh, like really really rough. Like it's not like an R-rated style, but this is definitely some PG-13 territory. So parents, you know, if you're if, if you feel your children are okay watching something like that, go ahead. If you want to watch it beforehand and then decide, you know, I do advise great parenting and you know making sure you know what your kids are viewing Uh, so but uh, if you want a complete review go and check it out like I said news.neverlandpodcast.com there's also a lot of other great articles if you've never gotten to check out that aspect of our website go check it out listen up all you cartoon lovers out there make sure to check out the Saturday morning rewind podcast to hear exclusive interviews with your favorite cartoon characters from the past and present if you were a fan of Thundercats Transformers G.I. Joe Ninja Turtles or Darkwing Duck Saturday morning rewind is the show for you join Tim each month as he interviews the voices behind the characters find them on iTunes Stitcher Radio and online at SaturdayMorningRewind.com to Disney and beyond to talk to that you know who he is but you probably don't know that you know who he is but he's here because there's this really great event coming up of course everybody knows 2015 was the year for back to the future 2 in october you know it's that's like the big time when he's supposed to it should all happen we should have another jaws movie and everything well to capitalize on this year there is a back to the future cruise that's going to happen and it's also to benefit Parkinson's disease. Well, not benefiting Parkinson's, but benefiting those with Parkinson's and looking for a cure. And in order to talk about that, we needed to get somebody who knew all about it, and you're not going to believe it who this guy turns out to be. But uh, we've brought on actor Jeffrey Weissman. Say hello! Hello! <laughs> Sometimes I'll go say hello, Jeffrey, and then I just get back, hello, Jeffrey. So, uh, Oh, okay. I'll t- try it again. Hello, Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah. How yeah, are you, Jeremy? You never know what kind of goofy people I'm going to end up talking to. So, <laughs> oh, I could probably out-goofy uh, Jeremy. I, I'm pretty goofy. Which is awesome. We love goofy people around here. In oh, fact, yeah, yeah. you've done some pretty goofy things. Uh, I, I've seen where you got to do, in between some acting jobs, you actually... Uh, Apparently, do a very good impersonation of uh, Stan Laurel. Yeah, for 15 years, I was the number one Stan Laurel at Universal Studios in in Hollywood. I've seen some photos, and you actually do look a lot like him. Uh, well, I'll take that as a compliment, I guess. <laughs> uh, and as well, I played uh, Charlie Chaplin up there and Groucho Marx. Uh, I've played Larry Fine in a Three Stooges team. Uh, I play a lot of uh, foolish characters. In fact, I, I almost hope to the, get on for your April 1st show because I've, I've played a, a jester and a fool at Renaissance fairs and uh, and kind of silly. In fact, my wife thinks that I'm uh, silly even when I'm asleep. <laughs> Is it one of your passions just to make people laugh? It has always been. I, I think when I was... Uh, as early as I can remember in, in uh, my family and in and, and kindergarten, you know, I, I started doing my best to be uh, to, to have fun and celebrate life. That's what it's all about. Well, there I, you go. 
even belong to a, a fraternity of mad men and women called the Fool's Guild uh, that throw these uh, extravagant parties, uh, three theme parties a year. If you're ever in Los Angeles, look up foolsguild.org. It's an open kind of party, but it always has a theme. If you come dressed in that theme, you'll have a fantastic time. Wow. But uh, is your specialty mainly e improv? Because I see you had a lot of improv in your history. Yeah, I uh, have always dabbled in improv, but started taking it seriously uh, back in the mid-'80s. I, I started working with a lot of friends who were studying at the Groundlings. We put a, a group together called the Comedy Omelette. We had folk like Julia Sweeney and uh, really, really actually cream de la creme of, of the improv community during those mid-'80s would come and jam with us. Oh, yeah. And when, when that group broke up, uh, I took those who didn't really want to, to stop and formed a group called the Flying Penguins, that, and I became the artistic director of the Penguins, and we uh, got absorbed when uh, Los Angeles Theater Sports uh, was formed. We became the varsity players, and out of that group, a lot of people that you know uh, went on to very big successes. Uh, Brad Sherwood, Michael McShane, uh, Wayne Brady, they, they all came through uh, Los Angeles theater sports, which are still going strong as impro theater. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I used to do some improv back in in, uh, in high school, and uh, where it eventually landed me is we had a local place here in Kansas City called Comedy Sports, Mm -hmm. And uh, we went with uh, it was some sort of high school group. Uh, I think it was part of uh, a group I was doing where we were doing like anti-drug campaigns. We'd go visit elementary schools. But we did this evening out on a Saturday night, and we went to comedy sports. And I actually got pulled up on stage. And the skit they were doing was they were doing like a talk show, and I was supposed to be a guest who was addicted to bananas or was a recovering banana addict. Oh, and so they asked me to do something with my voice to sound like I was disguised voice and then just had me go out there and says, just be ready for anything and just do whatever. And uh, so I ended up making this, you know, full story out there that I was telling my, my tale of what of being addicted to bananas. And I talked about how I would be on street corners doing the banana dance in order to raise money for bananas. And I... I should have thought about it first because the uh, the person who was playing the host says, "Well, can you demonstrate that for us?" Oh yeah, they're going to put you on the spot. Oh you, oh man, you're the, the hapless victim there. You yes, know? it was. Oh, but I had fun. I actually just without a thought, I just went on the ground and curved myself like a banana and started rocking back and forth and bobbing my head. So you're a <laughs> so, crowd pleaser. Oh yeah. Well, you know, you got to be a little bit, a bit of a performer if you're going to podcast. I understand. <laughs> The uh, potassium withdrawals are really severe. Oh yes, they were. I had the shakes for weeks. So, <laughs> but yeah, I I actually still have. They gave me a pair of sweatpants for that. And I still have them. I don't fit in them, but I still have the sweatpants. It's like comedy sports. I I understand they have great appeal. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I I slipped on that one. <laughs> All right, have you got another five more in yet? <laughs> no, I'm just monkeying around at this point. Well, as long as we don't gain a yellow streak. Hey! <laughs> what you know? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, so, yeah, improv is always a lot of fun, but uh, I actually saw that you teach improv. Now, how do you go about teaching improv? Because a lot of it, boy, you just got to think fast on your feet. Well, it's, it really is uh, uh, more like coaching. Uh, you, you try to keep people listening. Uh, improv really is about listening Daring to stay off and being supportive. If if there's a scene going on and 
and it really is doing all right, and it doesn't need anything to be added. That's one of the, I think, the hardest things to get performers to not do is to go on when it's not necessary. Uh, I'm a natural ham. It took me years to get this. Uh, and so I'm sharing my many years of uh, hard work and, and wisdom and realization that I shouldn't have gone out there um, because the scene was doing okay. You know, that's that's probably the, the biggest thing is is uh, if the scene is, is doing all right, don't go on. If there's an offer, seize that offer, accept it, and then then twist it, turn it, uh, heighten the danger, take a risk, go to the complete opposite, try different things to keep everyone on their toes. It's all about listening and supporting. Uh, I've been very fortunate to to have worked with some of the uh, in some of the Second City alumni shows and guests in in many different improv shows uh, for for many many years, and it's it always blows my mind how the really great improvisers make it look so effortless. And in a way, uh, it's a muscle that they've been flexing and, and working out. And uh, w- once you get it, it just is I- extremely fun. If you get a chance to see, say, uh, uh, Colin and Brad's uh, version of Who's Line or, or Greg and uh, Ryan's version of Who's Line, they, they're, they're just remarkable. And I'm talking about Who's Line Live, the uh, stage show's that tour the country. Oh wow! It, it is so much fun. So much fun, and and they use some, of course, some uh, surefire hits. Example: uh, Colin McCready and, and Brad Sherwood always end their show with doing a. Uh, let's see, it's an opera. It might have been an alphabetical opera, blindfolded and barefoot, with a hundred loaded uh, mouse traps on the stage. <laughs> it's a crowd pleaser. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So how much improv did you get to use when you're trying to also be, you know, like when you're doing street performance and you were being, you know, uh, Stanley Laurel or being Larry of the Three Stooges? You know, how did you, was a lot of that improv or did they have a lot of things that they told you, hey, try to do this about every five minutes? Well, in, in playing those, those characters, uh, everyone expects you to know their favorite line. Uh, more recently, I've been uh, playing Mark Twain, and everyone wants to know if you know their favorite Twainism. Uh, for Stan Laurel, there's you know this certain uh, uh, you know gestures, uh, mm-hmm. the 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 smile that he actually stole from a or borrowed from a uh, music hall artist named Dan Lino, uh, and and certain uh, things with you know scratching the head and and uh, that sort of. Uh, look in his eyes like he's spaced out and and then there's little lines that he would say like uh um you don't believe me um that's uh, you, uh hello ollie you know um there there are lines that he you know time flies like an arrow and fruit flies like a banana <laughs> and they were back to the bananas again <laughs> yeah I, I had to work it back in that's the secret of comedy reincorporated the uh the the thing with any of those characters, Stan Laurel's genius or Charlie Chaplin's or Groucho's, uh, even Larry Fine's with the Stooges, uh, I study and study and study and <laughs> and try to do justice and, and get down the, the what they've laid out and do my best to pay, pay tribute to them and then add my own stuff on top of it. I have a, a pretty quirky, silly side to me and, and I'll try to mesh that and my improv- improvisational skills and uh, work with whatever is presented to me. I've been in situations 
that are totally absurd, or, or uh, maybe I've had uh, a choreographed scene with pie fights and everything that have gone completely south because uh, you know the the party the party girl uh, you know wanted to do it her way and it becomes complete mayhem. Well, you can't try to force your agenda. You have to go with the flow and by listening and being flexible and all. It's it's like teamwork uh, with the audience. Uh, you know, recently I saw Oprah Winfrey at the uh, preview screening of Selma before it, before it opened. And she has a way of feeling an audience and getting into their zeitgeist and pulling whatever's going on in their subconscious and telling them what they want to hear. You know, it's a great uh, almost sixth sense and uh, one of those muscles that you can't see, but boy, the intu- intuition is really remarkable on, on great impro- improvisational artists or great speakers or great leaders and politicians. Uh, so uh, with improv, I've also used it in movies. Uh, if, I, if I'm allowed to, I always make sure that the director and or writer, if the writer is there, that they're all right with me uh, bringing things in. Uh, there's a film where I play an obsessive-compulsive winemaker in a mockumentary called Court, which is very hard to find now, but uh, maybe streaming again on Amazon and Netflix. And I had the agreement with the directors and, and writers that uh, if they had time and they liked what I brought in, that they'd let me do it. Uh, and so I came up with maybe you know, 30% or more of my performance uh, of stories or improvisational bits that I came up with on the set. Uh, and a, a really good director in rehearsal, if you have the luxury of rehearsal <laughs> on a film, will let you do things. And like in Back to the Future, here we go. Oh, surprise. Uh, That's what everybody didn't know yet. Ta-da. And in, in part two, uh, when Marty Jr., uh, Lorraine says, Mar- Marty, get, uh, get your grandfather a piece of fruit. And he says, fruit, please. And that big thing comes down in, in the McFly kitchen of 2015. And he gets a banana. I, I improvised trying to eat a banana upside down. I had to work the banana back in there. So for anyone who hasn't figured it out, Jeffrey played George McFly in Back to the Future 2 and 3. Which everybody's going, no, that was Crispin Glover. It's like, no, go look it up. Crispin Glover only did the first movie. And then Jeffrey came in and played it in the second and the third films. Yes, and... So trying to eat a banana upside down is not possible if the peel is still on it. So I kept getting slapped in the face with a peel. And, you know, Robert Zemeckis laughed and, and they thought it was funny, but it, I, it didn't stay in the film. It, I think you can see it in the bonus material, though, if you get the DVD. I was looking for it on the Blu-ray and I couldn't find it. I was, I, after reading the description of that, I really wanted to see it. Oh, well, the, the first release on DVD has it. Oh, see, now I need to go find the original release. I bet it's on eBay or something. I think. Well, I tell you what. I'll I'll send you at least a still from it, so I I uh, I'll be able to prove it to you that that I did do it. <laughs> See it with banana in your face. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe I'm confusing that the uh, the golf swing, the four rotate your axis for pizza, uh, is in the bonus materials. Not the that deleted scene definitely is in there. I just saw that today after I read about oh. it. I was like, I want to see, so, and it is there. Uh, it is labeled on the Blu-ray set as being the extended pizza eating scene. And, uh, okay. yeah, uh, Leah Thompson comes over to you with pizza and says, well, you better rotate back around here so you can eat. And uh, that's when you rotate around and say, four. 
<laughs> yes, and with the, the signature George McFly laugh, which was just great. Uh, and you actually got this role because of uh, a friend, or I don't, I don't know if he was your agent or not, but had known of your ability to really embody these characters at Universal Parks uh, and thought, well, hey, you know what? Could you possibly do this, huh? Uh, it's sort of like that. He he actually uh, was a is a friend and uh, was an agent for Lookalikes, but the uh, the production had called him looking for uh, photo doubles, and he supplied Kevin, who was the photo double for Michael J. Fox, and then he had called me up and thought asked if I thought I was the same height uh, as Crispin, and I had worked with Crispin actually on a film at the American Film Institute a few years before the first film came out. So that would have been 83. Uh, and I thought he was a fascinating actor, and I, I got his number. I even stayed in touch, and I, I said, no, Crispin's actually taller than me, but, you know, what is, what's, what's up? Uh, they need a photo double for Crispin for, what, the new Back to the Future, the sequel? And he said, oh, I'm not at liberty to say. And I said, get me in there, you know, I'll, I'll uh, see if I can get it. And I, I met with the assistant directors, and then they sent me to casting, and then I started going to, for uh, prosthetic uh, and uh, body cast fittings, and then uh, a screen test for Dean Cundy and Robert Zemeckis. And and uh, they liked my screen test, and it wasn't until, of course, the 11th hour that I found out that Crispin wasn't a part of it at all. And I was like, that seems unfathomable that they could do it without him. And I just... I didn't know what to what to think, uh, except of course, the uh, uh, opportunity to to uh, do a co-star in a big film and also you know to fill such big shoes like Stan Laurel and Charlie Chaplin and others that I play. He really laid the groundwork. Yeah, I mean his, his character in the uh, characterization in the first film really was remarkable. It was so fun and quirky. I just was thrilled when I saw it in the theater. I know that guy. <laughs> and uh, 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 later, no, about a year later, I auditioned for a commercial for Cherry Coke and got that and played a greaser which in this uh, Cherry Coke commercial that was based on Back to the Future. You can see it on, on uh, YouTube, I think. And Victoria Jackson is the roller skating waitress or whatever. Anyway, um, so it was kind of ironic, you know, having this little connection there and then to get the role. Uh, but at this, on the other hand, it was odd because uh, obviously something was not right uh, because he wasn't returning. So I figured he had another bigger project that, you know, was more important to him and that they needed to fill his shoes. Now, originally in the script, Back to the Future 2 and 3 was one script, Paradox. Mm-hmm. And in part three, the role of Seamus was to be played by Crispin. And uh, because he didn't come back, Michael J. Fox ended up stepping into that role as if he didn't have enough roles already. Yeah. <laughs> just showed uh, how multi-talented he really is. Yeah, he, he just he worked his tail off. He, he was shooting the last season of Family Ties during the day, and then he would come and shoot with us all night. I was like, Michael, where – when do you sleep? And he said, oh, well, in the limo on, uh, from going from studio to studio. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I hope it was a long limo drive. <laughs> from Paramount to Universal? Yeah, it's uh, uh, 20 minutes, 15 minutes. Maybe you can hit traffic. And <laughs> yeah. In L.A., it's all the time, yes. <laughs> Turned into an hour. Oh, my goodness. So were you given a little bit more freedom as the grandfatherly George McFly to uh, kind of 
translate what that character would be like as a as a grandfather in retirement like that? Uh, somewhat. Oh, as you know, I played George age 17 because they had to recreate uh, the scenes from the Enchantment Under the Sea dance mm-hmm. and the fight in the parking lot with Biff and all that. And they uh, used you know, me mostly in, in background doing the action um, and, and or, uh, you know, a couple quick shots of Crispin from the first film spliced in there. But that's all me uh, pretty much. And then as old George, I wasn't necessarily included in any rehearsals for character development or anything, but I was able on set to come up with a few bits. Example, when I uh, make my appearance as old George hanging upside down at the door of the McFly household in 2015. Uh, the first couple of rehearsals and uh, takes, I I was pretty much head level with Michael's uh, um, anatomy. His, butt, his anatomy, his butt, <laughs> oh. uh, in his Marlene uh, uh, drag. Oh. You know, so he was playing my granddaughter. And and the orange hot pants that they stuffed and put him into um, kind of looked like a pumpkin. So that little line, how's granddad's little pumpkin, came out of that. So I will never be able to watch that scene the same way again now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So once again, there wasn't a lot of room for improvisation on that set, especially with the the stakes being so high, you know, and, and Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis having written that script, they're pretty much wanting what they wrote down. But they also are very trusting of their talent. They, the, I, the one thing I noticed about Bob Gale, I'm sorry, Robert Zemeckis, is that he casts extremely confident talent. And that way he can just sit back, really, and just solve problems, and uh, which is lovely. That's uh, a sign of a really great director. And... Uh, we had very, very long days. I remember during the shoot of the McFly household of having 19, 20, 22, and 26-hour-long shoot days. Ooh, and you were hanging upside down through most of it? Yeah. Yeah, they'd, they'd get me down sometimes, you know, especially for a meal break. But once in a while, you know, they – they didn't want me to get down all the time because it was uh, would make the day much longer. Uh, so they built a ladder with uh, a, a plank on it that I could lean back on. And uh, once in a while, I'd lean back and everyone would leave the set. And I'd be hanging up there going, hey, where is everyone? Oh. I'm all here by myself. They you know, all had to go f- for coffee and a, and a bathroom break. Oh. But uh, yeah, it was, it was rough. But nonetheless, I couldn't really complain. I was on the set of a, a $50 million film, and I was really happy to be there. Oh, my goodness. How how much was the pressure? That, I mean, that I figured everybody felt it, uh, but to know that you had to follow up with such a successful movie, was it uh, nerve-wracking on set, or you know, how did everybody handle it? Uh, everyone very professional in business and, and having as good a time as you can under that pressure. Uh, there was... Uh, a few moments where there were technical problems. Uh, in fact, the the shots where we had Michael playing multiple roles, like around the dinner table, around pizza, um, using – now, this was 89, mind you. So this was one of the first times there was a computer-run camera uh, designed by a gentleman named Tondro. And the Vistaglide would actually, in the camera, splice the film so – 
Michael could step in in each one of the different characters, like passing the iced tea from Marlene to Marty Jr. or to Marty Sr. and over – anyway. Uh, and so we had to block it, uh, set our movements – and then keep them very precise, and so we could match it each time for each take. And there'd be hours in between takes while Michael, Michael would change costumes and wigs and makeup, etc. So we were a couple days, I think, into shooting that, and overnight, one of the nights, there was an earthquake. Of course, Los Angeles yeah. <laughs> got to have an earthquake, and Zemeckis was probably, you know, sweating bullets uh he thought we might have to start from the beginning because the camera probably moved and apparently it didn't move so much or so terribly that it would be noticeable and and so he we got through that there are other uh technical things that happened uh with special effects that were you know was pre-digital so the all the effects you see the uh the window uh, projection of a bucolic scene or what have you, uh, and then she uh, Lorraine lifts the shade and it's a brick wall there. Uh, that was a very t- uh, difficult shot to get. That took us many, many hours to figure out because you kept seeing the flash of the slide projector. Uh-oh. And, and uh, in fact, I remember Zemeckis sent us to second dinners uh, while he tried to figure that out and came back and he had solved it. He said, Leo, you know, why don't you just hold it out at this angle, look back at the camera, uh, buy a little time for the projector to go off and then pull it up. And it worked. You know, it, it's the finessing of it. And that really was, was uh, what it was all about. They were very complicated shots, but, uh, you know, they got them all. Everyone worked really hard. And, and the beauty of Zemeckis' team, his crew, everyone kind of thought a little bit ahead of him. So uh, it was really lovely, very, very professional, really sweet people too. I'd say that was a pretty good training ground for Zemeckis when he was coming in again to uh, do uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and suddenly now he's working with a lot of characters that are not physically going to be on set. I'm sure there was a lot more times where he's like, ah, oh, yeah, we're used to these crazy effects now. Well, it's funny. I asked him that. I I was I adored Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I asked him, you know, I've heard rumors, is there going to be a sequel? And he uh, he said, no, nah, I don't know. And I said, why? But, uh, because it was so di- difficult, so challenging. And uh, he said, no, actually, uh, I've had I've got more challenging shots on this shoot than I did on Roger Rabbit. <laughs> wow. So always looking for the bigger challenge, I guess. Yes. My goodness. Yeah. So on the bits where you're uh, being the 17 year old George, and I guess they're kind of more focused uh, where you had to come in and maybe Michael J. Fox was, was doing something main in the foreground and you were basically in the, in the background. How much effort and how difficult was it to try to recreate exactly every motion as it appeared in the original film? Well, in a way, it wasn't so difficult because it was already there and accessible to me. I could go over to playback and say, am I doing this right? Am I lifting my arm High enough? Am I getting this? And, you know, and people would um, help. You know, the stunt coordinator, choreographer would be there to help recreate it. And, and Tom Wilson is lovely to work with. And uh, you know, and Leah, of course, was a, a gem to work with. It, it really is uh, wasn't that difficult. I, I suppose the difficult part was, uh, you know, sometimes, especially at the beginning, people looked at me like, "What the heck is this?" You know, because I'm in the, all this prosthetic makeup. That makes me look and resemble the original actor. And 
So it felt odd, you know. At times, I felt, you know, uh, like an outcast. Um, but I'm kind of a, a nice guy and a silly guy, and I, I warm up to people. I'm very sociable, and you know, by the end of the week, I'm I'm uh, in like with the family. And it also, they were kind of stuck in a corner. They were Crispin had kind of bound their uh, hands with having to do their their shiftiness uh, with me um, because they couldn't come to the contractual uh, uh, agreements. Hmm. So, if uh, you know, we could look at really at their version of 2015, and we can see a lot of things that didn't come true. And there actually are a lot of things that I think we, they kind of hit it close to the head. Not as much as like Star Trek kind of predicted future technology, but uh, you know, would they have the video conference? Pretty much, they almost have like a Skype call on their TV there. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of things actually did seem to come true, but a lot of things Absolutely. didn't. So of the, all the things that they they had guessed for 2015. What is the one thing that you wish we could have gotten that didn't happen? Oh, it's still going to happen. Aren't the Marlins and the Cubs going to go to the World Series? <laughs> Actually, I'm hoping the Royals are going to go back this year. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Of course. Sorry. All right. St. Louis. Love you, St. Louis. You know, I worked oh, at... Oh, well, uh, St. Louis uh, is nice. They've, uh, they've won a few. We need the Royals back. <laughs> I'm sorry. Kansas City. Kansas City. Right. I beg your- Wrong side of the state. <laughs> I beg your pardon. I, I worked... I worked a, a summer. Oh boy, your summers out there are just so lovely. Oh, oh boy, yeah. the humidity. Um, I, I worked at the uh, Six Flags down there in Eureka. Um, well, I know I, there's one around St. Louis. There's a Six that's Flags. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's where I got my my brain fart there. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> so what so, were you doing there? Were you doing another character? Yeah, I was playing characters. They were doing a tribute to Hollywood there at the uh, the theme park, and spent the summer there. And in fact, I remember. Being in my trailer underneath the Batman ride when it got hit by lightning wow. during a, a tornado watch. And I was like, you know, I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of here. Going to a real building. Uh, oh, never a dull moment. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so how many different theme parks have you uh, played characters in? Oh, several. Several. I, I worked uh, since you do a lot of Disney things. You might like this. Uh, when Disney owned the Queen Mary I was hired to play a parapsychologist, a kind of a ghostbuster during their ghost tours. Cool. And uh, it was a very cool show. I had I got to control the special effects uh, during the scenes I was in. Uh, tours would come through. I was stationed down in the old haunted swimming pool, and they had based the show on some actual footage they had of a parapsychologist speaking with a disembodied voice. At midnight, and uh, they had sworn affidavits from the security guard and the cameraman and this parapsychologist. And you hear on the video that we studied uh, this little girl's voice, and you hear him sp- and see him speaking to her and her responding, and so on and so forth. So it was very cool. I was a month or two into doing this show that they had based on this little girl's voice and uh, special effects, steam and lighting and things, moving chairs, falling over and such. And uh, was doing a show in the middle of uh, the show. Actually, I just come out and the the tour was in there I was like what are you people doing in here and I'm doing my readings and I heard the little girl's voice and I hadn't started the sound cue I I was the one that actually started the show where the little girl's voice comes over and I was like uh-oh and she 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 spoke again and I the only person that would have known that we were having a real apparition was the tour guide and I looked at the tour guide and I said did you hear that and he said yeah it sounded like a little girl and I said yes and then I deliberately showed him 
that I was pushing the button on the bottom of my detector uh, box that I was starting the show and the recording. And he did a double take. And I was like, yes, we, we heard her that time for real. And we did the show. I, I double timed it, got out of there. And as soon as the crowd left and the, the special effects wound down, the steam and the lights and everything, I did what I saw the parapsychologist do on the video that we studied. Uh, and I asked her, is she all right? Does she need help moving on? What's going on? And she actually responded to me twice. Uh, I can't tell you what she said. I couldn't understand what she said. But it was very clear to me that we had an audio apparition. So that was kind of chilling and fun. <laughs> yeah. Spooky Disney story. Oh, but there, there are a lot of spooky Disney stories around the parks. Uh, a lot of them end up being just kind of rumors and everybody gets freaked out like the uh, supposed ghosts that have been on Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, one of them, a maintenance man, that uh, if you don't greet him, he will cause the ride to break down. <laughs> oh, hey. Got to be very nice to that ghost. <laughs> yeah. There's all kinds of different stories and a lot of podcasts have covered them because these, these stories circulate around. And I've also heard podcasts that go through and end up debunking every single one. But uh, I've also heard cast members talk about when they close a, a uh, one of the attractions like in Walt Disney World they have a lot of dark rides in Fantasyland and even after you know they're closing things down and they go through and they're sweeping just walking through it they'll still have some things active and they said it's actually just scary going walking through because it's very weird to be by yourself with all the animatronics still active sure so, it's, you know, Disney's got ghost stories up the wazoo and a lot of it is just because, you know, psychologically it messes with you being in there. <laughs> so, uh, now I'd have those at Universal too. I'd often uh, do special events at the different sound stages, like uh, stage 28, which the, unfortunately they just tore down where they shot the Phantom of the Opera. That was definitely a haunted stage. You could feel the vibe in there. It was really interesting. In fact, after shooting Back to the Future a couple of years later, I ran into Dean Cundy uh, while he was shooting uh, with Robert Zemeckis, the Death Becomes Her on that stage, and went in there and, and watched uh, Meryl Streep uh, do some of her work on that. That was a lot of fun. But the, uh, I think one of the more remarkable things, I was doing a, a publicity photo shoot at the stage that has had King Kong in it. And I made the mistake of walking, stepping on this, the tram bridge and it activated the emergency exits, and all these alarms went off. And, oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> it was comedy. <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, well, <laughs> speaking of frightening things, uh, you also got to be in the Twilight Zone movie. Yes. Yeah. In fact, uh, I'm very excited for George Miller's new film. The you know the Mad Max Four coming out. Yes, I'm actually excited for that one. Even though I've only I think I've saw maybe. See, I think I think I think I saw the first one uh, of Mad Max, and I know I saw Beyond Thunderdome when I was a kid, but I barely remember anything but the song and the big fenced-in area. So I'm kind of hoping I can go into this one without having remembered much of the original movies and still just enjoy it and then go for the ride. Yeah, what is it, Fury Road? Yeah, um, that's so. Fury. The uh, it's unbelievable. It it just is so wonderful. He is probably one of the one of my favorite directors that I've ever worked with. He is such a, a, a delightful gentleman. He's, you know, he was a doctor. Uh, when, when I worked with him, it was his first Hollywood project, and he was just taken with Hollywood. He was loving every minute of it. And we got along great telling jokes and uh, working with him and, of course, John Lithgow. This was the remake of Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. Uh, the William Shatner was the original version on television uh, 
um, Rod Serling's. And uh, it, it just was a dream working with him because, once again, he was a director who said, uh, you know, he trusts his actors. If in rehearsal you ha your instincts say, I have a bit of business or a line or something, let's try it. And often we would try things and he'd keep them. And uh, it was just delightful and he cast very well. I, I loved everyone on that, that set, uh, Abby Lane and J.D. Johnston and Donna Dixon. There were a lot of terrific people on that shoot. And, of course, John Lithgow, who was a gem of a person. Yeah, and he's amazing sometimes. As, uh, just the variety of roles I've seen John Lithgow do. Uh, it's just impressive because he can be completely hilarious at one moment, and then he can he can scare you half to death. I've seen him play some evil characters that sure well, he gives you the creeps. <laughs> De Palma and company, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, he he's a very very amazing actor, and uh, yeah, it's, I've been very fortunate to uh, work with some very diverse acting techniques. I, I teach not only improv, but I also teach drama, teach acting, and film technique, and I've. Uh, John was weaned on stage. You know, he came from a very prolific theatrical career, and watching him work almost from the outside and bring it down for film. Whereas I've also worked with Clint Eastwood, and he puts everything right there at the the end of his nose. You know, and it looks like while you're shooting it, like he's not doing anything, and yet when it's up on a seventy millimeter, you know, on a seventy foot screen, uh, it's very full. And then working with Michael. Watching his work up close, where he was weaned basically on television, where he really got his formula, his his technique, really, you, you could see him, if he uh, didn't feel like he was honest on something, uh, he would call it himself. He wouldn't wait for the director. He was like, I got to do it again. I didn't believe it myself. You know, it, uh, just really remarkable to see his formula, Michael J. Fox's formula, as opposed to, say, Clint's technique, which is all really small at the end of his nose, uh, and, and Lithgow, who's really huge and works his way back down. And, and it, all three of them work from truth and authenticity, and yet three entirely different techniques. It was really, really fun for me as an actor to, to see all this. How intimidating is Clint Eastwood in person? He's a very nice guy, although his aura is intimidating. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it, it precedes him. Uh, I remember... I auditioned for Fritz Manns, the producer, and was put on tape. And now Clint was the director, so he hired me. But I had not met him, and I was getting ready to shoot my first scene on set. And I had yet to meet Clint. And so he, uh, we blocked out my scene, and then he went off to scout out the next shot up towards the forest where uh, Michael Moriarty's character is riding off to town and uh, Carrie Snodgrass's character was going to stop his, his carriage. And uh, I followed Clint and it was just Clint and me and Clint turned around and saw me and said, yeah. And I said, uh, Mr. Eastwood, I just want to introduce myself. I'm Jeffrey Weissman. And he goes, I know who you are. Who do you think hired you? <laughs> I was like, oh yes, of course. But uh, yeah, ha, ha, ha. You know, and he was in his duster and his hat and cowboy persona. And it was, it was pretty cool, you know. It was very intimidating, but it's an image, uh, you know. Having lunch with him and and chatting with him and being social, he really is a down to earth, very nice guy. And for anyone who doesn't know, this was the film Pale Rider from 1985, I believe. Yeah, it was re uh, Clint's return to westerns. They had tried for ten years, I think, to to get Clint to to do a western, and he, you know, I think Outlaw Josie Wales was the closest he had come uh, previously. Um, but a, a all out and out period piece. Um, uh, he he uh, was you know 
really a terrific director to work for. He, I think, learned from Don Siegel, who directed him in uh, Dirty Harry, how to be over-organized and shoot rehearsals and such. And so often, sometimes, not often, but sometimes, we wouldn't even get to a take. We would shoot the rehearsal and Clint would like it and say, all right, let's move on. So it was a very quick-moving set. And once again, his crew just loved him and thought ahead of him and, uh, you know, were incredibly professional and hardworking. And also we had a few amazing uh, things on that film that you can see. The, the film is beautiful to watch. Bruce Surtees, the cinematographer who unfortunately is no longer with us, he, I don't know if he was the one who talked Clint into doing this, but someone, the art director, production designer, had that set, the main set of the town, built on the top of a, a mountain, totally exposed. But everywhere Bruce set his camera, you'd have a panoramic view of with the Sawtooth Mountains behind or the White Cloud Mountains or the Salmon River Mountains. Wherever he set his camera, it was gorgeous. And you see that, especially if you get a chance to see Pale Rider back on the big screen. It is really stunning to look at. And I've never seen this movie. Now I have to watch it. <laughs> yeah, and it was freezing, though. I mean, oh. <laughs> we were so exposed to the elements. Uh, even though it might have been 10 degrees, it was 10 below with the wind chill. Ooh. Was it that yeah. cold when you were out there barefoot in the water and fishing? It was pretty cold there, too. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. Oh, well. Uh, I, I tried doing improvising some comedy on that shoot, too. Every Whenever uh, my character, Teddy, he was kind of a, a half-wit. Uh, and whenever he got excited about something, he would, you know, fall on his butt. And, and Clint liked that. He actually laughed a few times, but it, none of it uh, stayed in the film. Aw. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of a reminds me of something that I saw a photo of you with Dick Van Dyke is that doing some of the, the pratfalls and things like that. Uh, that's uh, when I was a kid. I used to watch the Dick Van Dyke show all the time, and I learned how to do some physical comedy from him. To where when I was doing some acting on stage, which I haven't done in a long time, I actually found ways to integrate. You know, where I could do a pratfall, and I I I also have talked to a director into saying, "Wouldn't it be funny if my character came in and I did this and fell over this or whatever?" Because it would actually fit for the story, and I. I had one director that just let me almost have free reign as long as I told him first what I wanted to do because uh, it was actually a musical version of Frankenstein that I was doing in a community theater. And I just added all kinds of little jokes or pratfalls, and I, I owe it all, I think, to watching Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I told Dick when I, I met him on, uh, I guess, start on a episode of Diagnosis Murder, and uh, I, I actually told him when I was little I wanted to grow up to be him. And they kind of shut him up. He kind of was like, okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I you know, I loved, of course, Burton, Mary Poppins, and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, et cetera, and his TV show, and uh, really was thrilled. I, I actually brought to the set an alpaca sweater that I had found at a thrift store uh, with the Dick Van Dyke label in it. And when he saw that, he was like, I forgot totally that I for, I loaned these people my name to make these sweaters. <laughs> and he, he was thrilled to see it and uh, a gem of a man. And he, you know, was very close to Stan Laurel. Really? And uh, as well was friends with uh, Buster and Eleanor Keaton and uh, told some lovely stories. Uh, you know, when, when we weren't on set shooting, we were off talking to each other about these legends. And uh, really a lovely time with Mr. Van Dyke. Wow. That, I bet you they had a big influence on his comedy then. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. He, he, was, 
he was nervous, 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 nervous the first time he met uh, Buster Keaton and uh, went to his home. I should let Dick tell the story, but the, the upshot was that, that Buster was even more nervous meeting him. So it was kind of <laughs> wow, <laughs> very ironic. Oh, and it would be awesome to have Dick Van Dyke actually come on the show and tell me that story. I'd love it. <laughs> you should grab him. Oh, yeah, there's probably no way I could get any, anywhere near him, but boy, if that was possible. <laughs> I see how far my reach goes, and I work my way up. So far, mainly, I've gotten to talk to a lot of voice actors, and now I've gotten to talk to a good actual movie actor, so I'm working my way up, and who knows, maybe I'll get Dick Van Dyke on the show, and then I'll probably just be going, that I'll, I'll only want to think, oh, you were in Mary Poppins. <laughs> well, Jeremy, if you want to talk to more actors, you should come on my cruise that I'm producing. Yes, the Back to the Future cruise. We definitely got to yeah. talk about this. This is exciting. I've got Mark McClure, you know, who played Jimmy Olsen in Superman with Christopher Reeve. He was Dave McFly in the Back to the Future movies. Oh, wow. He's worked on a lot of different movies, and he's coming on the cruise. Uh, Francis Lee McCain, who you you know her from, from Gremlins and Patch Adams and uh, Footloose and Stand By Me. Uh, she was Lorraine's mom, you know, Stella Baines. Oh, wow. In Back to the Future, she's coming on the cruise. Harry Waters Jr., you know, who was uh, Marvin Berry, who sang, you know, Chuck's cousin, who sang Earth Angel and uh, led the band. He's coming on. We're going to re restage the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. Oh, wow. And, of course, Don Fullalove, you know, Mayor Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> mayor! I'll run for mayor! Yes. He's coming on. He's a fantastic <laughs> person. He's a... Uh, a, a, a pilot for airplanes and 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 a voiceover actor and look up his his resume you'll be surprised there there's some uh, fantastic talent and an opportunity to get him on your show. <laughs> yes, first I got to get myself onto the cruise ship. Uh, where can people get tickets? Uh, you can uh, fill out a booking form and send it in. The booking form is at bttf cruise.com or cruise to end parkinsons.com what we're doing is after we meet our uh, production costs we're splitting uh, all the uh, profits proceeds with the parkinson's research uh, foundation for team fox which is and, awesome yeah and uh, you know what what i uh, i guess about 10 years ago i actually thought of this idea and I called a guy who had been producing the Star Trek cruise for many years, and he said, you don't want to do it. It's a big pain, blah, 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 blah. And, and I was like, I can't give this up. And so uh, a year or two ago, I called him back, and I said, you know, I really want to do it. And this time he said, I'll help you in any way I can. My dad has Parkinson's now. And, uh, you know, we all uh, adore Michael and are praying that we find a cure, you know, uh, before he gets sicker. Yeah. And, and the fans, to me... The biggest uh, thrill and gift f for being on these in these films have been the fans. I never had really a line of people uh, uh, wanting my autograph before London Comic Con or the Milton Keynes show I did there a couple years ago. I was like, "Wow, this is I have to pinch myself. This is kind of cool." And uh, the same thing when James Tolkien said, "Why, why, why me? Why do they want me?" And I said, "Because you're representing." This time in their life uh, that they want to relive or celebrate your work in Top Gun or Back to the Future is Principal Strickland. <laughs> and and uh, so the fans have been really generous and loving uh, towards me, especially the DeLorean owners. They have brought me to their conventions to MC or guest or what have you. And I thought, well, we want to give back to the fans, so get as many of the cast and crew members there. And we want to 
also celebrate and honor and try to help Michael and the cause for uh, Parkinson's research. So that's the theme of this cruise. Which is awesome. And, you know, speaking of the DeLorean owners, for anyone who have seen on my website the photo of me standing there in the Michael J. Fox pose with a DeLorean, that was actually part of Team Fox. Right on. It was awesome. And uh, I can't remember the name of the couple, but I know you're friends with them. Oh, um, uh, to the future.org. Yes. That's Terry and Ollie Oliver Holler. Who have tra- now traveled to all 50 states raising money for Parkinson's Foundation. It is fantastic. They have a replica DeLorean. They even had a, a backdrop of the clock tower. And you can get a photo in there for a donation. And depending upon I, how much you're willing to donate, you know, you get a, You could sit inside. You could stand outside. You could stand on a hoverboard. It was, it's a great way to way, raise money and also really gets all those, all us geeky people really happy at conventions. <laughs> and, and you couldn't, you couldn't find lovelier people. They are just, just genuinely sweet, wonderful people. Uh, and they have raised now, I think over a quarter million dollars wow. with, with that DeLorean time machine and that photo op. I'll be joining them at Wizard World in Las Vegas, uh, the last weekend of April. Now I wish I could get to Vegas because I'd go to that one too. <laughs> uh, I don't know if uh, I guess this won't be airing before this coming weekend. I'll, I'll be down at uh, WonderCon too, promoting the cruise in Anaheim. Um, but uh, once again, if if anyone's interested, uh, what I recommend is uh, if you want to go and you can't afford to find a philanthropist, tell them it's a great idea and that they need to go and take you with them. There you go. Because <laughs> uh, it is a high ticket item. It's yeah. you know it, it, it ain't cheap, but if you think about a uh, eight day seven night cruise. Uh, with these celebrities, and in addition, we have just joined forces the uh, uh, Star Trek uh, cruise at uh, convention at sea. The uh, cruise trek is is letting all our passengers go to all of their events, and they're going to have three celebrities from the Star Trek movies or series on board as well. Wow! So it's uh, pretty amazing. Out of Fort Lauderdale, going to uh, a private island off Haiti, and to Jamaica, and to Cozumel, and back to Fort, Fort Lauderdale. Wow, hey. Now, on the Oasis of the Sea on Royal Caribbean. Now, what dates are the cruise? November 7th through the 14th. Which is perfect because that means you don't have to compete directly with Disney in their Star Wars and Frozen cruise. Although I think All right. <laughs> yeah, I think both of those I think take place over the summer. So so doing this cruise in November, it's perfect. So if somebody really loves to go on these fun cruises, they could do the Star Wars, they could do the Frozen, and then they can do the Back to the Future slash Star Trek cruise. Right. Good, good. Oh, I like the way you think. Yes, you, you could be cruising all summer and all fall, and only one of them, though, goes to a really awesome charity. And that's one thing I've really appreciated about Michael J. Fox is when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, he really helped to raise awareness about the disease. Because, you know, it's, it's something you might have heard in passing. You've heard that, oh, there's some disease called, par- called Parkinson's. But uh, Michael, when he was diagnosed, when he went ahead and, you know, told everybody about his diagnosis uh, and started doing appearances and talking about it, you started to see the effects it was having on him. And I, I really kind of helped, you know, I, I start to understand it a little bit better like of, of what it was doing and, you know, will one day, you know, probably be his, the end of him. Uh, so it's, I it really, I don't I, I think it really has helped him going out there and, and making those appearances and then having groups like the to the future.org and btTF.com uh, raising the money it's, it's really it's an awesome thing I really like it 
It's it's uh, very potent. Uh, in 08, I think it was, uh, I went to one of the first Back to the Future cast reunions in Hollywood, and Michael just happened to be in town promoting a book that he wrote, and he stopped in unannounced. And, of course, the crowd just went wild. It just went nuts. But we, before we, Michael faced the crowd, uh, we had about 20 minutes with him, with Chris Lloyd and Leah and uh, Francis and Mark and, and Claudia and myself. And it was just tearing me up inside because, you know, Michael uh, is, as you can tell, is just a, a terrific guy. He's just down to earth and fun. And yet the disease sort of like freezes him in his gut and makes him have to move uh, mm-hmm. almost involuntarily. He's got to walk away and then he'll pull himself together and come back. And, and it, uh, it's, it's pretty heartbreaking. And uh, it's, it hit, hits close home to me as well, not only with Michael, my, my father, who unfortunately in his uh, dec- declining years, his, as his dementia and Alzheimer's kicked in, his best friend had Parkinson's. And yet he had a fabulous relationship with him. And then uh, another dear friend of mine uh, just recently found out that he has the terminal version of Parkinson's. So this is uh, very, very personal for me uh, to, you know, it may not be a a success. I may be losing a great deal of money producing this thing, but at least I'm going to try. There you go. Yeah. That's the best you can do with things is you can at least just give it your best shot and uh, let let the chips fall where they may. And we'll definitely, you know, hopefully people will share this episode with their friends and especially, you know, other than the geek factor of like, oh, he was in Back to the Future. Uh, but uh, to, to share with the cruise and uh, I'll make sure we get some links there on the show notes. So there you listening to this. Look at your iPhone. <laughs> look at your Android. There's going to be links Go follow those links. Learn about this cruise. You you know you've been dreaming of a cruise anyway, right? So this is your opportunity. Go on a cruise, meet some famous people, have a lot of fun, raise some money, help find the cure. Right on, Jeremy. Thank you. Yes, I'm a good chiller. <laughs> but, uh, oh, I've got to ask, how many times on convention do people walk up to you and say, hello, McFly, hello? Uh, pretty often. You know, there's... <laughs> There's some signature things they they want me to to do, you know the, uh, especially when when autographing a picture, they want me to say certain things that um, maybe I didn't say that yeah. Crispin did or what have you. But I, I try to you know keep the the fans happy. Um, the, the the wow factor is generally like you because most people didn't know or realize it was a, a different actor. Yeah, that just shows how good you are. <laughs> That you were able to slip into it, and we could hardly tell the difference. That's pretty impressive, I'd say. Well, that's what the boss wanted, too. <laughs> Which makes me wonder, and I know we really got to end this here, but uh, I've heard you know, from different, uh, you have a, a great thing on your website that has a lot of different clips, and it, it seems to you like you, kind of like how I was doing with community theater, but you like to put a different voice to each character. So have you actually ever done just some voiceover work? Oh, Sure. Yeah, I in fact for many years in the 80s I was in a loop group, you know, where we do voices for uh background who are not on mic. Huh. Uh so films like Heathers and uh, a TV series here or two, uh, a handful of movies, uh I still get residuals for for uh, th- that voice work. And then I've done voiceover for commercials and some radio. Um I have 
in fact, done a few animated voices, but nothing uh, as big as, say, my friend Darren Norris or others I know who have been on The Simpsons or Rugrats or what have you. But uh, hopefully that will come. Yeah. Well, heck, you're talented with different voices and everyone believable. That's that's really what it takes. And and Don Fullalove. You know, come on the on the cruise, you'll hear all the voices Don Fullalove can do. I'm not familiar with his name. What all voices has he done? Uh, look him up. Don Fullalove, you know, Mayor Wilson. He'll uh, he'll surprise you. Oh yeah, that's like the guy who played. Oh, I'm running for mayor because that guy, well, that guy was just funny in that movie. Even for having a small part, I just love his bit there in the diner. <laughs> I don't know why that just always sticks with me. Yeah, I'll run for mayor. You just look. I'm gonna clean up this town. Yeah. So yeah, he's just a great character for for being a small part. It was really wonderful. So so, so we do have the hoverboard. The, oh. the hoverboard is now working. We do, but. It, yeah, it has to be on a metal surface, though. This uh, company down in Silicon Valley uh, got it working at, uh, about, I don't know, eight months ago or so. They came out with the demo video of it, and, uh, boy, they got bombarded. People just can't wait. Um, but it, once again, has to be on a metal surface to make the magnets work. I think I remember hearing something about that one, but I haven't gotten to research it. Now, I did also see... Uh, Early on in the year, there was a uh, a production value type of video where they got, I think, Tony Hawk or some other professional skaters getting on a, like a fake hoverboard thing and doing a bunch of stuff. And yeah, yeah, that was exciting for me because even though I wasn't in it, shortly after that came out, that video because it had Chris Lloyd in it and uh, Moby and some basketball players and you know celebrities. Uh, my IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, where my page is, my resume. It shot up to like the highest it's ever been. They have an algorithm uh, reading it, so you you're rating the lower the, your number, the more famous you are or more popular you are. <laughs> and and I had never broke ten thousand, and I think I got up to five thousand or something. Um, and generally, you know, most actors are a hundred thousand or something. Um, so I was like, what happened? And I went back and. I think that happened right after that video came out. So people saw it and must have had to go see who else was in Back to the Future or whatever. You know, It was very interesting. So th by clicking on my IMDb page, my rating goes up. <laughs> so quick, everybody, go look for Jeffrey Weissman, two S's <laughs> on IMDb, and click it right now. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. You're a pal. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> Well, it's uh, been a great pleasure, and thank you for thinking of having me on. Yeah, anytime. All right, don't forget the bttfcruise.com, and uh, I've got a, a fantastic science fiction movie where, where I actually play a time traveler um, that will probably be coming out in, I don't know, within a half a year here, so have me back on, and I'll promote that. Oh, certainly. Just let me know when it's coming. I will. Neverland feedback. All right, Neverlanders, we have a few new Twitter followers to let you all know about. Toby Downton, uh, he's actually got a book he's working on. If you're a fan of the book Ready Player One, which uh, you've probably heard about on Techno Retro Dads, and I'm actually currently listening to the audiobook, uh, I can't give it a full endorsement here on Neverland because it's not a very family-friendly book, but it is very cool and very interesting uh but de 
if you enjoyed that book, you'll enjoy Toby Downton. He's got a book he's working on. I was looking at from his Twitter account. Also, Bryce Poole, new follower, and Antoniza Scott. And I hope I pronounced your name right. If I if I got it wrong, I do apologize. Uh, but that's the feedback we have for this week. I do want to remind you to go to NeverlandPodcast.com. And remember to go, if you want to see the show notes, you have to go into the podcast section. There are some really neat photos that Jeffrey Weissman sent me that I will be putting right there on the website, and I will try to squeeze them into the show notes so you can look them up right there on your phone or whatever device you happen to be listening on. Uh, but uh, yeah, definitely want to check those out. Some really cool photos, and when you can get a really a better look now at the photo I used for the album cover you're seeing there, you can just barely tell that that is Jeffrey Weissman and not Crispin Glover because of, it's, in, it's in the eyes. You can see it's a different guy. Uh, but I really want to thank him for coming on the show and for sending me those really, really great photos. Well, that's all we have for this week, and it's time for us to return to our, our homes. But uh, remember, while you're at home, you got to keep that pixie in your pocket. And what I mean by that is that is your young at heart and good attitude. You have to keep that pixie in your pocket so you can spread some pixie dust and share a little love with some other people. It really helps out with your day. It helps out with other people's day. There's so much you can do to pixie dust other people. Sometimes it's just simply saying hello, a good morning, a handshake, a hug if it's okay, you know, but just little things that you do. So try to go and love out on somebody this week and tune in next week. I've got a lot of exciting things coming. I'm about to have a guest on to talk about a fan film, which is about to premiere, I believe, in Germany. Uh, it is focused around Masters of the Universe. We're going to talk to him, and I plan on presenting that next week. I'm also setting some things in motion, making some plans to have a nice panel discussion about the Disney film Song of the South. That's coming up real soon, so make sure you stay tuned in here and come back next week. Until then, God bless. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Blueberry. We love to hear from you on twitter.com slash neverlandpcast and facebook.com slash neverland podcast leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492 and send email to podcast at neverlandpodcast.com join us next week and we'll once again go to disney and beyond the neverland podcast is copyright glue band productions and all original content belongs to the same other content is copyright of their respective creators and is used under Creative Commons license. Good night, Neverland! BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24.